Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And still across the wires from France, Richard Lawson, you're still a can. I'm still here somehow. (laughs) Uh, You are going to be in France for the foreseeable future, um, but it's a good thing because you're going to be able to give us some dispatches of what's going on over there. So before you have to run off to your next uh, fancy red carpet screening, uh, the thing that I want to hear the most about, I think, is the most recent premiere as we're talking Under the Silver Lake, the Andrew Garfield movie that we've talked about on this podcast already. Uh, How is it? Yeah, I'll have a review of that up by the time this this podcast uh, goes up. So it's interesting. I didn't really know what to expect from it because, I mean, I'd, I'd seen It Follows and thought that was interesting. I have not seen The Myth of the American Sleepover, which is the director David Robert Mitchell's first film, I believe. This one was not going to be horror. It was going to be neo-noir kind of in L.A. And I love Andrew Garfield, and I'll, I like a, like a mystery. But this one kind of didn't work for me. It's about this kind of schlubby guy who all these beautiful women are throwing themselves at, which I guess is a nod to sort of like old detective stories or something, but something about the setting in the current day in this, you know, the east side of LA, I just found it all a little bit too much. I was kind of in the minority there though. How's our pal Andrew? Oh, he's really good. It's a really good performance where, he, you know, he's sort of got this muted presence, but and he does some really funny physical humor in it. Um, so he's definitely not the problem. No one in it is the problem, right? L- Riley Keough's in it. She's good. The filmmaking is interesting. I mean, it's sort of David Lynch meets um, Paul Thomas Anderson. That's all well and good, and it, but there kind of are too many weird details, too many little diversions. It's two and a half hours long. I just kind of couldn't stick with it, considering that, like, all the female characters are sort of sidelined and sort of used as kind of objects in a way, and I think that maybe that was deliberate in its commentary, but something that I touched on in my review of this movie and in a review of uh, Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built, which is also here, is like, at a certain point, commentary just becomes content. And, you know, yet no, it's about how awful he is to women. It's about, you know, violence against women. But you're like, okay, it is, I guess, but you're also just showing it. So I've kind of reached that threshold with both of these movies in different ways. It kind of reminds me of that scene. And have you guys watched Glow on Netflix? Yes. Where, you know, one of the wrestlers is saying, I don't want to play a welfare queen. It's offensive. And Mark Maron's character is like, no, 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 this is commentary. This is the kind of, you know, like really hard edge commentary I'm known for. And it's so transparently awful in that scenario. And yet people do that all the time. That's exactly the feeling I got from Under the Silver Lake at times. I mean, who knows what exactly, you know, Mitchell's intent was in making it and how much of it is supposed to be ironic and how much is just kind of sincere. But whatever mix I saw on screen, I didn't I didn't care for. But what about the house that Jack built? I loved your review, but I want to hear more about this thing. You actually kind of hated it less, it seemed, than a lot of people who really just were were enraged. Yeah, I just found it kind of exhausting and annoying rather than like, you know, fully, you know, morally repulsive. The new screening schedule at Cannes this year meant that I had to see Black Klansman and then go home and write that review, thus missing the gala premiere of the Laws for a Trier that some press went to. So after that screening got out, I was out to dinner with our VF colleagues and the tweets started coming in and they were all, you know, 100 plus walkouts and all this stuff. And so I really braced myself for something that was going to be excruciating to watch. And, you know, there are parts in the movie that are really gross and grim and scary and sad in a way. And it's Lars von Trier as ever trying to provoke and I don't know, kind of exercise some demon out of himself. And that's the part that I find kind of found kind of exhausting. It's like 
I get that he's dealing with mental issues and I, I understand that and he's still a good filmmaker, but like just this kind of relentless brutalism for brutalism's sake. And, you know, he shows clips of his past movies in this movie. So it's so self-referential, so self-regarding, self-loathing too, in this way that I was just like, dude, like just figure shit out and then come back and show us a movie. Like, don't make us sit here and watch this horrible stuff while you work through your sort of, you know, artistic ego and all that. Well, I mean, speaking of artistic ego and uh, demons that haunt people, it sounds like Black Klansman is maybe similar along those lines for Spike Lee, but that's something that's really been hitting well with people there. Black Klansman went over very well, for good reason. I think it's a really interesting movie. I think you could look at it from... Actually, there's kind of a lot of this between these three movies. Like, on one hand, if it's just a straightforward, sincere thing, maybe it doesn't quite work, but if it's kind of meta-commentary, it really does. In Spike Lee's case, uh, with Black Klansman, I choose to read it as meta, and, and Rebecca Keegan did an interview with Spike Lee that'll be, I think, on the site by now that I think he kind of confirms that where you have this sort of I mean, it plays kind of funny, this story of this black cop in 1970s Colorado who over the phone infiltrates uh, not only his local KKK chapter, but becomes sort of friends with David Duke, who's played by Topher Grace, which should be an indication that the movie is kind of winking at us anyway. So you watch this movie. It's, you know, it's fun. It's weirdly fun for a movie about really dark stuff. And then at the very end, Spike Lee kind of almost turns to the camera and says, did you really think it was going to be that easy that you could just sort of solve racism or, 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 or you know, the KKK or who, who, whatever else they want to call themselves, like with just this kind of nice, like triumphant, bow neatly tied story? No, you can't. This stuff, you know, that was 40 plus years ago. We still have some version of this now. We can't be complacent about it, especially certain members of the audience. You know, I really like that kind of trick. And um, it was nice to see Lee back in form again. Richard, the other thing that uh, I, as someone who's just kind of watching Can via Twitter, really got wind of was the Gaspar Noe film, which, you know, he's yet another provocateur who brings, you know, films to get people to maybe walk out or freak out of diverse movies. But people seem to really fall in love with his latest movie, which is not usually something I think of with Gaspar Noe films. Yeah, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Kyle Buchanan at, at Vulture, was telling me that he interviewed Noe a couple days ago, and he said that he was really confused because a few years ago he came here with Love, a movie that was pretty widely reviled. And he said, like, 85% of the reactions were negative. And so I came here and I said, I have to get 90% of negative reactions. And now it's been 90% positive and I have no idea what to make of it. It's a really surprising movie. So it starts with this kind of riot, 30-minute long kind of dancing sequence with all these beautiful young uh, people from all over the world. A lot of them French, but from all over. And, you know, racially diverse and sexually diverse. Like, it's just a really interesting, feels very now of the moment. And then about 30 minutes in, it turns into this kind of psychedelic horror movie. Uh, So it takes an abrupt turn, but it's all pretty interesting. I, I found the horror part of the of the film uh, really hard to watch, like almost more hard to watch than the Von Trier for whatever reason, because it's just a lot of relentless screaming and the camera is, you know, these long takes as they follow characters down halls as they're, you know, drug-addled and uh, you know, it's, just, it's a lot to exist in that headspace, but when you take a step back or think about it an hour or two later, it kind of washes over you and you realize like how incredible the filmmaking is and how different, I've never seen anything like it. Um, so yeah, it just had this really energizing jolt to it that I think, you know, it was playing in a quieter sidebar category and no way has been, you know, on sort of not terra firma with his last film. And so it just all kind of conspired to make for a really nice underground hip can surprise. So he said it's in the sidebar category, so it's not going to be a Palm d'Or competitor. No, no, it's in the director's Fortnite. That is also hard to keep track of from a distance. I'm just glad to know it's No Way. I always thought it was just No, which felt like a weird last name. So that's that's better. <laughs> this is I think it's No Way anyway. I don't know. It is. It is, yeah. You're supposed to learn these things from going to France. 
But Richard, there's one other film that you really loved as far as I could tell from your review, even though I think you think the English title is stupid <laughs> compared to the French <laughs> title. Uh, you want to talk about Sorry Angel? Uh, yeah, Sorry Angel is great. Um, it's a movie from Christophe Honoré, who's been around a long time. But uh, this is like, I think the movie of his that really connects the best. Um, and, you know, I was actually somewhat in the minor- minority with this one. Um, a lot of my colleagues that I respect here were sort of meh on the movie, but something about it really connected to me. It's called in, in French, Give Pleasure, Love, and Run Fast, which is just so much better than Sorry Angel. It's a movie about AIDS in the early 90s in France, so very similar to BPM in that way in terms of themes. BPM being the movie from Cannes last year that you yeah. really loved and was yeah. maybe should have won the Palme d'Or, I think was the consensus. And I think that that Olmodovar wanted it to, but had felt he had to give it to a more consensus choice. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, this one, you know, BPM was about activism, and there was a love story in there. But this one, Sorry Angel, is much more about you know sort of a personal stuff, like like a, a romance between an older writer and a younger guy. Um, it's pointed, it's political, it's funny, it's. Romantic, I guess, in a way. It, it was re- it's really similar to the novels of Alan Hollinghurst, who wrote The Line of Beauty, if anyone's familiar with those. I was very proud of myself because I mentioned that in a review. And then at the press conference the next day, Honoré said he, that he had given uh, his lead actor a copy of an Alan Hollinghurst novel to read before they filmed. So I was very... You, I felt you, did, very, the re- you did the assigned mm-hmm. reading. That's right. So yeah, I really like that movie. I don't think it's a contender for Palme d'Or just because, again, the reception has been a little bit muddled. But again, you know, the critics are not voting on this. The jury is, and we, we don't really know where Kate Blanchett, who's the president of the jury, is leaning. Though I have heard that she, you know, there are three uh, female-directed films in competition, especially with this protest that they had on the red carpet with, you know, 82 women. Um, we have good coverage of that uh, on, on the site from Rebecca Keegan. That, that you know, that the Blanchett's going to want to try to give it to a female director. And there is, I mean, at least one very deserving film here called Lazaro Felice. It's from Italy. The director is Alicia Rohrwacher. Uh, and it's this very strong strange, allegorical, folktale-y kind of thing about the changing scene of, of rural Italian life. Um, it's kind of magical realist and uh, supernatural and religious in a way. So it's got a lot of people talking. I think it's at the, toward the top of the sort of grid of critics, you know, f- from Cannes in terms of what is a Palme d'Or front, front winner. So we'll see. You know, I'm terrible at predicting these. I think in the f- five times I've been here, I've only seen the movie that won the Palme d'Or once. <laughs> so, <laughs> Have you seen that one? Yes. But what about, Richard, what about Oscar contenders? Any Anything jumping out? Is there anything from Black Klansman or anything else that feels like it could be very Oscar-y? I think Black Klansman would probably be, uh, you know, screenplay would be uh, somewhere to look at it. I mean, who knows? It's opening in August, which I guess Spike Lee likes to have a summer movie. So um, that's that sort of August awardsy slot, whether it's The Help or Detroit or, you know, some whatever Meryl Street movies out that year, has had some res- you know positive re- results, some negative. Certainly Detroit did not go over well. But yeah, we'll see. I, th- I think that that movie is beloved here and critics were really excited, like I said, to, you know, and people were also pointing out the Chirac. Was, was was strong too but you know excited to have Spike Lee kind of back and I think he, he the timing he wanted it to be in time for the Charlottesville anniversary I believe which was August ah right there is a, a, a significant reason for why he would want that in the film 
you know, so we'll see. I, I, I'm curious to see what American critics think about it once it starts screening uh, over there, because we've all talked about it many times on this podcast, like Festival Fever is real, and maybe we were all just so caught up in the, the glitter of everything here. But I don't think so. I think that Black Klansman is um, it's going to be solid in, in the States as well. Any other movies, films beyond that? Um, you know, it's been kind of quiet. I think two movies from Sundance came here in, and screened in smaller sidewalk categories. Leave No Trace, which is the film from Deborah Granick uh, with Ben Foster, and uh, Wildlife, Paul Dano's directorial debut with Jake Gyllenhaal and Carrie Mulligan. And I had been keeping an eye on the reception of those here because I was just curious to see if Leave No Trace would get the kind of momentum. I think it deserved out of can. It's a really beautiful film. It doesn't seem to have really connected here. Uh, neither really did Wildlife, and I was curious about that because, you know, Carrie Mulligan um, has long been in this sort of awardsy mix, and this seemed like maybe this is um, this is a movie that could take her all the way, but I, I don't think so. So yeah, you know, this has been an interesting can, uh, very few American English language uh, uh, titles, um, and thus, you know, Oscar stuff beyond the foreign language category is looking a little thin. I was uh, talking to uh, our friend and former guest of the show, David Sims, who pointed out that Spike Lee has never been nominated for Best Director, which... Like, is right because so few non-white men have been nominated, but also just kind of stunned me uh, because he's such a major filmmaker. And I, I wondered if that kind of oversight plus the buzz for Black Klansmen could make a movement for that happen. Yeah, it certainly could. You know, again, it's just a matter of uh, how that release works for the film. You know, but I think that uh, if this is, if the reception here is any indication, um, that will be a movie we're, we're going to be talking about for a while. I do look forward to the idea of Spike Lee schmoozing with all of these old Academy members and completely driving them crazy because he's so charismatic, but also says things that make people mad all the time. And um, that would just be really fun to watch in an Oscar campaign. I agree. Okay, Richard, you have to go soon. Any other last things you want to make another Palm d'Or prediction? Anything else we should know about from Cannes? Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I've, I've gone to some fun parties, seen some fun things, but, uh, you know, I think that we're making the best of a festival that like has been a little off or whatever. Uh, we have beautiful photos from Justin Bishop coordinated by Kiara Marini and Brett Hennemuth on the site, uh, that look amazing. Julie and Rebecca did some great reporting, you know, both, you know, party stuff and, you know, serious stuff. So I think we covered the festival pretty well. Uh, on, on all, you know, across all bases. So everyone should go check that out. Thanks for checking back in with us, Richard. And uh, we'll be happy to welcome you back stateside next week if you do indeed decide to return. Yeah, we'll see. Au revoir for now. So something that played at Cannes that we didn't talk about with Richard uh, was Solo, which uh, is a movie you may have heard of. I don't believe it is an Italian magical realist story about farmers. And to talk about that, we have brought in uh, Cam Collins, our film critic, who has seen the movie. Uh, your review is up on the site, Cam. Uh, and you and Joanna are the people in this conversation who have seen it. Um, but maybe we'll start with you, Cam, to just uh, introduce you to the show. Welcome for the first time. Uh, tell us about Solo. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, Solo is good. It's, it's, <laughs> it's fine. It's good. Um, it's a Star Wars movie, but it's the title is Solo, a Star Wars story. It's very clearly a kind of one of the the off-brand sort of lesser children of the franchise, uh, kind of like Rogue One. It's sort of like a little bit separate, um, which is, I think, to its advantage because it doesn't have to be as intergalactically huge. It doesn't have to have as many fight scenes. It doesn't have to be two and a half hours long. But it's also sort of small. 
I think. But they um, also don't have to kill everybody at the end to close the Not everyone loop, dies in the, the end. Close the, yeah, okay. <laughs> there is a surprise death that I was not pleased with. Uh, but no, right. There, there, it's, it's not one of those. But it is, it is still, uh, you know, the character-driven, the same kinds of jokes, the same sorts of relationships, the same kind of funny droid. It, this time it's Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's hilarious, who deserves to be in one of these movies as a flesh-and-blood person someday, maybe. And yeah, it's Alden Ehrenreich as, as Han Solo. He's not Harrison Ford, but that's fine. No one is. He's pretty good. He's got like good cheekbone structure. <laughs> He's charismatic and he has great hair. And also I think it's it's a movie about, right, like it's it's Han, it's young Han. So it's a movie about the making of the guy who eventually becomes Harrison Ford. He's not there yet. You kind of see him picking up gestures and um, attitude along the way. But he is still sort of like a, a lone renegade. I have no master kind of guy and Chewie's in it you know it's it's cute it's good I like what you said in your review that at first you're like this isn't Harrison Ford and it's like okay well this is this could be the guy who becomes Harrison Ford yeah uh, there's a little tabula rasa thing going on there and and by the way you know Harrison Ford's 2016 or whatever Han Solo is very different from the 1977 Han Solo too right yeah, so absolutely. there's precedent for evolution in this character yeah, and, and, and frankly, I guess what I love about Han Solo is that he, you know, he's like the cowboy. Um, and that is what Harrison Ford is to me. I think about him on movie sets now, like Blade Runner, just sort of not into it, but there, doing a great job. Yeah. But not phoning it in, but, you know, like just, you know, hanging out, being Harrison Ford, being a movie star. And the classic, like, you can type these lines, but you can't say them. Right, uh, right attitude toward the whole right. thing. <laughs> um right, which is which is which is how I feel about Han in many ways, just sort of his relationship to you know, like Star Wars is doing this whole revolution liberation stuff in, in all movies right now, and Han Solo is just is not that kind of guy. He's not political in that way. Yeah. I think it's an interesting role. And you know, Alden Alden is Alden is good. I think it's really too bad that the big story before this movie was that one of the big stories was that he had to have an acting coach, which is not rare. But I feel like that was planted to sort of yeah. bring him down a bit in a way that I, that I don't think is quite appropriate to the performance. I think he's good. Well, Joanna, what do you think about that? Because you're, you've are you been doing some reporting around this uh, topic. I think what a lot of people are going to do, Star Wars fans and otherwise, when they see this movie, is try to figure out. Because, you know, uh, the original directors, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, exited the project a couple months in. They brought Ron Howard in to take over. Cam's right that there's been, like, all these stories about the movie before the movie came out. And I think a lot of what Lucasfilm has been saying is, like, please just judge the movie for the movie and not for all the drama that you read in the trades. That being said, it's, it's irresistible to watch this movie and try to figure out, like, well, what did Lord and Miller, who are known for their sort of zany comedy, and what did Ron Howard, who is known for like really like workmanlike like emotional drama sort of stuff, what like what did the, each director do? Have a hand in which scenes are left over from the original? I actually think it's kind of impossible to tell, though there are moments of comedy that really work. So it's tempting to be like, oh, that's Lord and Miller, but but uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge, who I agree with Cam is, I think the highlight of the film, um, has said that they did a lot of comedic improvisation when Ron Howard was directing as well. It wasn't just a Lord and Miller thing. So when you like, when a joke lands particularly well and, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge obviously has a lot of uh, improv in this movie, you're tempted to say, oh, that's a Lord and Miller film, but it might not be. So all of that's to say, my experience watching Solo was that for the first quarter 
I think of the film, to me, maybe a little less, Alden Ehrenreich seemed extremely uncomfortable in the role. And then he relaxes into it. And I'm not saying it was shot in that order. I'm not saying I know which director got him to relax. I'm not I'm not saying if an acting coach helped him. But Cam's right that sort of, at, at least for me, eventually... Whether or not it's exactly Han Solo, this is a character that I am excited to watch. Alden Ehrenreich, who does have so much charisma, which we saw in Hail Caesar, like really gets to show it off. And every time he grins and stuff like that, you're like, yes, this is the character I want to watch. So it gets there eventually. And if this, it seems to me like Lucasfilm, even though this is, as Cam said, one of their anthology, quote unquote, standalone films, it seems very obvious that they're setting this up for some kind of trilogy. And Kathleen Kennedy in the press, I don't know, today or yesterday, implied that the next standalone film would be a Lando film. So it's possible that they'll continue this Han Solo arc that they're clearly setting up to be a continuing arc uh, through the Lando movie or through another Han Solo movie. But the point is, like, whatever reservations I had going in on the other side, I was like, yeah, I'd watch more of this for sure. It was fun and fine. And I enjoyed myself. I talked to some Lucasfilm people, actually, who were surprised by the positive reception out of the premiere. Those poor people have been in like hazard pay for months. Yeah, yeah. After after all the Less Jedi drama, they were surprised by the positive reception, like pleasantly surprised out of the premiere, out of the New York screening, out of Cannes. And they were talking to me. They're like, well, maybe everyone thinking it was terrible just like really worked to our advantage. And that's just what happened you know they were like yeah they're like maybe we should always lower expectations on these movies i was like maybe so you know they made a movie that's just it's like a good diversion right it's like i I think it's a matter of just the movie not being as ambitious as the kind of main parts of the franchise need to be where you can just it can be more fun i just it was more fun to me than like i enjoy last jedi i think it's like a you know i i think it's fine but it's very long (laughs) it's very heavy uh, and and Solo just isn't. It's definitely not the Lord Miller version. I, I agree with Joanna. You can't really see the seams showing, but I can tell. I mean, Ron Howard overall, having seen his other movies, I don't think he's as funny as they are. So I think it's not as funny a movie. It's not like a, as funny a summer popcorn action comedy as maybe it would have been with them. But it's still like an enjoyable, if predictable, but like enjoyable, fun, pretty light on in the scheme of things movie. Frankly. I agree. I mean, I had someone who loved The Last Jedi, and that's okay that like people didn't, but I, I like absolutely love The Last Jedi, but I also think that there is room for Star Wars movies to exist that don't have to impart huge lessons about good right. and evil and, and the Force and all of that. I think there is room for both, which was the idea of having these anthology films to run sort of parallel with the Skywalker saga. The Skywalker saga is for um, the Force and light and dark side, and, and these standalones are supposed to be like different notes on the on the spectrum and Rogue One did not work for me in that regard um I had a lot of problems with Rogue One Han Solo works much better for me in that way and I agree with Cam like I think what Lord and Miller were trying to do was kind of Guardians of the Galaxy and this is certainly not that's that's what I was told that they've been they were sort of trying to do Guardians of the Galaxy this is not Guardians of the Galaxy and that's okay they're in an interesting place right now given that that's kind of the strategy is like hey let's you know basically spin off for two reasons i guess one is we could make more money if we had more star wars movies 
And two, like creatively, <laughs> this will actually be kind of interesting. Can we do a Star Wars movie that's just fun and not like, I mean, there's obviously been all kinds of cartoons and books and comic books that have done that. So why not do it with movies? But it is interesting that they tried a bold move with directors, but at the end of the day, Star Wars is still enough of a giant, big money, you cannot fuck it up franchise that when they saw it going off the rails, it wasn't like, all right, that's okay. We'll have like a bad um, <laughs> Star Wars yeah. movie. They're like, no, let's bring in a pro and we're going to just put this one back on the rails. I, I, I sort of respect it in a weird way yeah. at this phase of my life, like the, the, the willingness to do whatever it took to get like a decent product out the door. Um, but it shows that they, they can't quite free themselves, I think, from the heaviness of the Star Wars franchise, even when they're trying to do something light. Like there's no room for a giant screw up at this phase of the, of the deal. Marvel went through a similar phase, you know, from the outside people were, were quite critical of Marvel for, you know, say removing Edgar Wright from the Ant-Man film or something like that. And I think what Kevin Feige over at Marvel really wanted to do was just to make sure that he felt like there was control in the brand and, and continuity between the different films. Um, And now that Marvel's feeling its oats even more, if that's at all possible, there's room for directors like Ryan Coogler and Taika Waititi to come in. And so it's possible that Star Wars, once it feels like it's, on even firmer footing, which like, how can you be given all the money that they make on everything? It's the biggest franchise in history. <laughs> but like once once you feel like you can do, you know, and I think that's what Marvel did is they were sort of like, okay, will you go with us if Benedict Cumberbatch does weird interdimensional travel? And Marvel fans are like, yeah. So like, okay, let's do Black Panther. Let's go to Wakanda, whatever, you know? And so like, I think with Star Wars, like I said, I think Lucasfilm was sort of like scrunching up their eyes and wincing and waiting for Solo to land so poorly. And uh, at least with critics, it didn't. I still don't know what, you know, the quote unquote fans are going to say because um, because they're crazy and unpredictable. Well, because yeah. of the way they re- they reacted to even Mark Hamill playing Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi, you know, the the whole like not my Han Han thing, uh, that's a joke from the movie, uh, will, uh, you know, matter more to them than it will to a lot of us uh, who see way more movies and and have like a less sort of possessive feeling around the franchise. But they will like some of the things that I roll my eyes at, which is like, oh, this is where Han gets his blaster. And like the, the, (laughs) the, the audience that I saw it with just like ate that up. And I was just a little like, okay, I don't need my like Fuller House nostalgia buttons pushed like quite so hard, right? now but um you know that's that's all part of it and i think going forward there will hopefully if they if they continue with this which i actually i think they should i think there will be less of that hopefully but i I think your your point is good that like the reaction to last jedi showed that they aren't actually impervious right now and they aren't on completely firm footing in terms of expanding the franchise like they they haven't achieved the marvel level of like anything we do is awesome because we're marvel um, they're still they're still dealing with a giant like a fan base that's very 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 set in what it wants from Star Wars. It's funny because we're talking about Marvel Universe and Star Wars, and this is all the same company now. I mean, I think back to Ant Man, which is a movie that I think really it's too bad that Edgar Wright was removed because Ant Man's really a property that I don't want to say no one cares about, but it's it's not it's not Han Solo. Like, that's a movie where you really could just be really adventurous. And Han Solo, I understand why they would be a little bit less adventurous. But I would love to see, for the Lando movie, I would just love for them to lose a little bit of control and just see what could happen. Just give it to someone. <laughs> you know, like the Lando yeah. movie, I mean, he's such a – he's 
he walked off the set of a black exploitation movie, right? Like he he's like he's always been this sort of odd figure, but remarkably wonderful figure in the Star Wars universe. I would love to see a movie that was a little less Star Wars because he's always felt a little less Star Wars to me. You know, I, I would love for one of these standalone movies to really take on the personality that seems separate from the bigger universe because that's what they always felt like to me. So will they hire Hiro Mirai to do the Lando movie? <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely not gonna... <laughs> It's not going to happen, but I think letting Donald Glover and his taste have a little bit more say here could be really interesting. Um, you know, I think like the comedians he would probably put in it would be interesting. I would love for Maya Rudolph to be involved somehow. I just already have my dream Lando in my yeah. head. Um, but Han Solo, you know, for, for what it was, I really, my expectations were low. I feel like they did this on purpose. And I came out of it like, okay, so you guys can be sort of fun. And it's clear to me that you're approaching this movie much differently than Last Jedi. It surprises me that so many fans didn't like Last Jedi because I walked out of it thinking, I feel like this is what you guys wanted. I was shocked as well. No, I was shocked. I mean, it didn't compute for me at all. And I think it didn't compute for Lucas, right, Joanna? Yeah. That's sort of the weird thing that I think that why they're feeling vulnerable right now. We should remember that lesson from The Last Jedi, the gap between the glowing critical response. I mean, like, even if, Cam, you were sort of like B plus lukewarm or whatever on The Last Jedi, the overwhelming critical response was effusive. Um, yeah. And best, best Star Wars movie ever. And and then the fan reaction came in, and it, it was one of those, like, DC Comics, like, massive sharp divide between the fans and the critics and a really stressful December for a lot of people. And I, so I just, I'm bracing for that as a possibility because there's a lot of critical joy around this. And and there were, you know, there were fans on my screening uh, in LA and I'm You sure. were at the premiere. So you were in like a room of high expectations all around. Right. <laughs> yeah, but you know, high expectations, but also people are just like in the tank if they're at the premiere, right? They're just like excited. You and McGregor's here. Oh my God, you know, sort of thing. So um, I, I don't know why I went to, well, I know I went to that for personal reasons, yeah, but, um, <laughs> the, um, but I'm ready for Star Wars fans to be like, this is not my Han Solo, you know, and, and I hope they won't. And I hope they just enjoy it. Wouldn't that be nice if we all just enjoyed a, a good time at the movies, which I think is what Solo a Star Wars story is trying to provide. That's what Lucasfilm told me is that they're like, they were like, this isn't a Star Wars movie. And Mike and I talked about this before. They were like, this isn't a Star Wars movie. This is like an Indiana Jones movie. And Mike and I were like, what was the difference really between the original Star Wars movies and an Indiana Jones movie? Right. But, yeah. but you know, if, if that's what they're trying to do is maybe like more of the original Star Wars sort of like zippy space opera adventure and less of some of the ponderous uh, dramatic stuff. There is like the the, I guess the last thing I'll say that gave me pause and feeling like this was a good popcorn time at the movie is a weird disconnect between some of those Rogue One elements, which is just like the death toll, as Kim alluded to, is higher than you think it might be in like a fun summertime at the movies. And uh, so the like the sort of the incongruity between that and then some of the like, um, uh, you know, hijinks. Didn't didn't like really land super smoothly for me the first time, but it might smooth out the next time I see it. Not to take the politics of these movies too much at their word, but because we're these movies are throwing around words like liberation and revolution a lot. That's like their thing. More so than when George Lucas was doing these things. He was like doing his sort of like this is Shakespeare actually type thing, and that didn't really work out. But now it's like uh, you know, we have revolutionaries, we have slavery, we have all these things. 
And there's something, I mean, Han Solo in particular, because he is so apolitical, the gap between him <laughs> and like Rogue One and and everything else that's happening is really, it was a little weird to me. It fits the character, but it's, you know, it, it, it sort of reminded me of how vague um, the politics of these things are. Like, tactically, I remember some things about Rogue One, but ultimately, I think that anyone who's sympathetic to the main characters in these movies can be sympathetic to the revolutionaries, which is weird for a thing. <laughs> you know, like, like I, I don't know. I don't know too many people who are rooting for the Empire, but I also don't exactly know what the Empire is doing or what it wants or why it's killing everybody or what people are fighting back against. And in Han Solo, when that sort of intrudes, I'm like, right, what are we doing? Like, what, what? Han's confused, I'm confused. He doesn't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. It's a weird political time to be celebrating someone who is defiantly neutral. That's not really something we talk about in well, uh, politics these days. Yeah. I mean, something I will say in Han's, in like Solo, colon, a Star Wars story's defense, it's not like necessarily celebratory of Han's neutrality. Right. There's a character introduced in this film, and I'm not even talking about Lando, <laughs> because we know Lando. There's a character introduced in this film where when I was watching the movie, I was like, why am I not watching a movie about this person? And and if, you know, I'm sure Lucasfilm has a plan for like an animated series or at least a comic book or at least something about this person. But that's the revo- that's a revolutionary figure that um, I think the film is more admiring of even because like the, the problem with Han Solo and and putting him on the periphery of a revolutionary story is that we know when he joins the revolution and it's not until he looks like Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher's involved, you know? And so like he's, you know, he's going to opt out until then. And so that's a, that's a strange uh, issue with a prequel, you know, that. And even when he opts in, it's it's not for the revolution, it's for Leia. I mean, that's how I always understood it. Yeah. (laughs) And money. We haven't talked about Amelia Clark yet. um, Who I really liked in this. Yeah, I thought she was I, great. I have to say, like, I like Game of Thrones, but I've always felt that, you know, her character was sort of spinning her wheels for many seasons. Like, she had dragons, and she was acquiring an army, and that was going on for a long time. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't like a display of really what I think she as an actress is capable of. But here, I'm like, really, I don't know. I was really, I thought she's, to be frank with you, I think most characters are more interesting than Han Solo in this movie. And I would be really interested to see more of her as well. Um, and I, I feel like we're going to. Uh, I don't know, like an offshoot really, but I, I, she's a character and she's going to matter, I think. Yeah. The thing about Amelia Clark is uh, generally is that I think she just exudes a lot of warmth and she has to suppress yeah. a lot of that in Game of Thrones to do this sort of imperious world conquering thing. And in films like Me Before You, which uh, was, you know, is a silly little like romantic weepy drama, but she really got to trying to turn on full blast her her charisma in that movie and it really really worked I think and she's doing that here because even though her character is you know someone who can handle themselves in a fight someone who has a lot of intelligence and a lot to prove she's just warm throughout and even even in like you know double triple quadruple uh, crosses which you know this movie makes no bones about the fact that you can never trust who you're talking to she's always got this like warm thing going that just works really really well and my understanding is that uh it was actually ron howard who was able to bring out a lot of that in her so for that we we can give him credit that makes sense she definitely doesn't really have any funny lines i can't imagine i don't know what lord and miller really had in store for her but i but i do sense just like contra Han Solo's apoliticism, like her story 
is indicative of a lot of what's going on in this universe for me in a way that's useful. Um, and in the ways that I feel like Star Wars hasn't really, really explored yet, I think Star Wars can do a lot more with gender generally. And I think that her character um, would be a smart way to kind of do that, I think. So we've talked about Lando a little bit, but I wanted to ask you guys about Donald Glover, who is not just in this movie, he's on this kind of unprecedented run of stardom right now, like between the second season of Atlanta, the This Is America video, which was this enormous phenomenon. He just hosted SNL. He is like on top of the world right now. And from what I understand, like obviously they're talking about a Lando spinoff. He's good in the movie, but it might not be quite the Lando movie we're hoping for. It's more of a Lando movie than I thought it was going to be. Like more than Empire Strikes Back, where he's in and out in like no time? uh, Yes. (laughs) Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, right, he, he doesn't take over the movie. It's not a movie named after him. And that's just the way this is going to go for this movie. But I at least think that his performance justifies my long, long-term interest in that character. Like, I think he lives up to, you know, he, he makes me curious about the gap between him and Billy D. Williams. He, I want to see a movie. I want to see several movies, maybe, I guess, is the deal here, kind of filling in that gap. Because I think he really, he's fascinating in the same way. He just makes me wonder, like, where are you from? What kind of life did you have? Why are you, you know, like so cool? Why are you Shaft in this Star Wars universe? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, and, and and then the question of like how he and Han became friends is always something that, you know, this is a friendship that I've always been curious about. I think he really more than pulls his weight. I think he and other people just remind you that Han Solo is like not as interesting as, as he is. Joanna, what do you think of Donald Glover? So as a like longtime Donald Glover since Mystery Team fan, oh, I wow. <laughs> Yeah, my bona fides. Um no, I I was I saw some early footage and I was a little worried because I I thought he was doing it an impression when no one else in the film was doing an impression and that like made me worried about like a sustained performance. Um, and then I was wrong because though I don't think he's the best in the movie, can't, I think Cam and I agree that that might be Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yeah. He's great in everything that he's in and he is used, I wouldn't say even sparingly, but like not, he's not overpowering this film. Uh, it is still Han Solo's film, but Cam is absolutely right that Han Solo is probably the least interesting character in his own film. That happens a lot in movies. So that's called the Luke Skywalker dilemma. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'm so excited. I mean, not just his costumes, which are just like each more dazzling than the next. His capes. He has a closet of capes. He has a closet of capes and there's like one last look. Like you think you've seen all the Lando yeah. looks and there's one last look that just like blows the top off your head. It's so good. So like, um, yeah. So I would be thrilled to see more Lando and I... And my my idea for a Lando movie, if Kathleen Kennedy wants to listen, because uh, I definitely think she listens to the podcast. Hi, Kathleen. <laughs> As a follow-up to what we mentioned earlier, um, I just read a piece on io9 that Lucasfilm clarified what Kathleen Kennedy said in Cannes, where she said something about, like, Lando is the next thing we'll do. They, they are saying now that that was translated incorrectly, and she was just saying, we would like to do that someday. Mm, blame the uh. translators. Ramp your expectations down slightly, but... Um, Darn. My my hope and joy and expectation for that movie is I want it to be like a prequel uh, with Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character and Donald Glover's character and Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Donald Glover write it together because they are Ooh. both such brilliant writers. 
Um, and then I don't know whoever we want to have direct can direct it. But like, it's exactly what Cam was talking about in terms of like, in encouraging Star Wars to take more chances, um, to have someone other than a Kasdan write a Star Wars movie, to have right. Donald Glover and a Phoebe Waller-Bridge, uh, who if you watched any of the publicity tour for Solo, they paired the two of them together, and they're just a delight in every interview. Like, put those two brilliant, hilarious people together and give us the Lando movie we deserve with more capes. Lando, yeah. a, a cape wars story. I would watch it. I was going to say, you know, to your point about like someone other than a cast and writing these movies. Yeah, there are things about Lando. I like I know that it's not his movie, but there's a moment of um, Amelia Clark's character, Kira, sort of in his closet of capes. And it acknowledges all the capes. But I think that if like Donald Glover had written that scene, um, you you'd luxuriate in it a little bit more like it's it's. It's like a style thing. Style is so important to Lando. And that's something that the movie doesn't really, like, make time for. It also, for the record, doesn't make time for figuring out, like, teaching us, or showing us, rather, how Han Solo learns to fly, which I thought was going to be a thing, but we don't actually see that. They're just things that get dropped out that I think would be more interesting if other people were writing and they remembered, like, things were less tethered to the plot points that these movies need to get out of, get out of the way, and more to personality exploring personality i would just love more of that i mean donald glover wrote that you know he, he had a deadpool um show that he wrote with his brother and he posted a fake version of it and what i saw of that was like okay let this guy do deadpool right like let this guy take these properties and do them in his own voice and his own image and i think that phoebe waller be the same thing like let these people do these things their way just for a second i just want to see like, give me, like, 20 minutes of it. Give me a short film just to justify my suspicion that if you let the personalities drive this a little bit more, you'll get a more interesting movie. I can't promise a movie that Star Wars diehards will love more, but you'll get a more interesting movie. A movie that remembers that it's not just about plot. It's it's about it's personality, style, charisma. These things just matter so much. They're so important to the original trilogy. Plot is important too, obviously. But but personality and characters is and actors and movie stars, um, these things are really important to these movies. And I think the cast in writing sort of takes that for granted. I, I'm with Mike what Mike said earlier where I don't really um I kind of respect the way that Kathleen Kennedy like has a really strong vision for what she wants and is not afraid to fire people in order to get what she wants from totally. her from her bajillion dollar empire that she's been put in charge of. I do respect that. I look forward to a time when she feels maybe a little freer to experiment. Um, but I, I see no shame in her like really wanting to get this off on the on the foot that she thinks is the strongest, whether or not it, it's what what whether or not it's what wind up eventually being the strongest. We only have like a, a guess at what a Lord and Miller uh, or uh, Josh Trank Star Wars would have looked like, oh boy. but um, yeah, well, you know, that's, that's, that's a firing we got behind with Kathleen Kennedy. Um, but, but my, my idea born out of uh, Cam's suggestion is that Star Wars should start doing what Marvel did initially, which is these one shots, right? These little like, Oh yeah. 20 minute movies that they would do between movies to just like let you explore like Ben Kingsley's Mandarin character or something like that. It was just like a fun, um, maybe they weren't even 20, maybe they were like 15 minutes. I don't know. They were just like these fun little things. And yeah, I would love like 
just to see and just to show Lucasfilm like what the audience can respond to. Give right. give a Phoebe or give a Donald like a one shot. Uh, so they feel like there's less risk associated with it, and they could see that this could, could, I think, and agree, could be a really, really good thing for them. Let them try it out a little bit, just to see, yeah. The problem with Lucasfilm right now, um, and they're, they're sort of retconning it a little bit, like Han Solo, the Han Solo movie retcons a lot of like lore that they established about Han Solo in old books and stuff like that. And I don't, I'm not precious about that and I don't really care about that. But the thing that Lucasfilm is sort of groaning under right now is the fact that all of their properties after a certain period, and that means their books, their comic books, their animated stuff, um, is all in one continuity. Whereas Marvel doesn't have to worry about that because they just do different things from the comics. And so they only have to worry about continuity in their own films, which is hard enough for them to manage. But Lucasfilm, the story group at Lucasfilm is trying to manage one saga that bleeds out into all these different authors and all these different worlds and all these different properties. And for that reason, more than any other sort of artistic fear, I think for that reason of trying to control the continuity of this big saga, that's why they wind up being so staid sometimes. And I think they would do better to liberate their main films. Like there's a, there's a thing that happens in this film and this solo film at the end that, you know, plenty of reviewers and online fans have alluded to, but I'm certainly not going to spoil on this podcast, but the only way that makes sense to viewers is if they've watched the this the Lucasfilm animated series or read the books. And if they haven't, then they're going to go out and that's going to be an SEO boon for us. They're going to go out and Google like, how is, what is, how did this happen? I'll, I'll be I Googling saw... that or just texting you, Joanna, because I'm <laughs> sure I will be confused. Last, last movie I saw, this shouldn't make sense. But if you've watched the animated series or read the comics, it does. But like, should you have to, should you have to have that bridging knowledge in order to just go to the movies, uh, you know, once a year, twice a year? All right. Well, guys, I'm seeing Han Solo on Monday. I will uh, hit you with all of my questions, Joanna, though I'm assuming it won't be quite as confusing as, you know, say a given episode of Westworld. Um, but I'm excited about it. Thanks, guys. This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum-sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. 
So Mike, we're going to wrap up the episode by sharing your conversation with Glenda Jackson, who is currently on Broadway in Three Tall Women. She's a two-time Oscar winner. Uh, she's kind of seen it all. And it sounds like you guys had a great conversation. Yeah, I was a little anxious going into this um, because there have been some stories about what a notoriously difficult interview Glenda Jackson is. I don't know if she was you know, on special good behavior or if she actually just enjoyed the talk, but we had a lovely conversation. And if I may make a desperate attempt to link it into Han Solo, we were talking about the three Han Solos, arguably, the three phases. And, and Three Tall Women is about with three actresses playing one character uh, as a 20-something-year-old, as a 50-something-year-old, and as a 92-year-old. And that's what Glenda Jackson is. This is her Broadway return. She had previously played King Lear in London. But before that, she spent 23 years as a member of parliament on the, on the backbench in labor, ripping on Margaret Thatcher, ripping on Tony Blair, absolutely letting it fly in the fiercest way possible. She is an incredibly impressive person on every level. And this year she was nominated for a Tony for Three Tall Women. She could become one of the very few people who have um, Tony's uh, Oscars and Emmys. She has two, two Emmys and two Oscars, both from the 1970s. Anyway, hope you'll enjoy the talk. I'm thrilled to be here with Glenda Jackson, who is nominated for a Tony for her performance in Edward Albee's Three Tall Women. Uh, and and Ms. Jackson, it, it, this is a big comeback to, to Broadway and to acting, really, in the last few years after a long, illustrious political career in the United Kingdom. And so I wanted to ask, my first question is, I know you, you played King Lear uh, before this, and now Three Tall Women by Edward Albee. What was it about this part, this play, that made you think, yes, I'm, I'm going to do this on Broadway? Well, the actual writing itself, which is deceptively simple, but in fact immensely complex, in as much as eventually the characters are revealed in a way. And also one of the major, major things for me was that I would be working with two other actresses, and that's a very unusual experience for an actress. Usually if there's one decent part, if you've got it, there are no other actresses around. And have actresses of the calibre of, well, the two that <laughs> I'm working with is just right. bonus beyond belief. And one of the things that you said in an interview around King Lear was that there aren't enough creative writers who seem to write interesting roles for women. Is that something you found throughout your, your career? Absolutely. I see yeah. absolutely no shift in that at all. And I, it really perplexes me to wonder why contemporary dramatists find women so boring. Almost invariably, the driving dramatic engine is masculine. And if there are women in it, they're kind of mere adjuncts. And there has been no visible change, as far as I can see, so, since I first stepped onto a, a stage and got paid for it let alone in the last six months since time's up. Oh, well, I mean, heaven only soon. knows. I mean, yes, yeah. it may be too soon. Right, right. Let's talk about Edward Albee. He directed you, didn't he, in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Well, yes, indeed. Well, um, yes. I mean, I say that with slight hesitation in my response and uh, my voice because I found him immensely closed off as a human being. I mean, it was as though he lived in a glass case. He, you know, never cracked a smile, I got off on the wrong foot with him on the very first day of rehearsal. Oddly enough... How did you do that? Well, George and Margaret come into their home. They're both sl more than slightly drunk. Um, <laughs> and it's dark. And he said to me, Albie said to me, you know, and she sort of stumbled because she's trying to find where to put her coat down. I'm paraphrasing what he actually said. And I said, well, 
doesn't she know where the light switch is? She lives here, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. And that was not the kind of response. Mm. <laughs> so, so he was. So it wasn't a. a it wasn't a inspiring... meeting of minds at all. No. But you know, we had a, a marvelous cast and really, really interesting. And you know, the circular nature of life. Cynthia Nixon played the young girl in it. And she came to see the show the other night, and she looks fantastic. I can't believe it was as long ago as it was. And her understudy in the Orby piece also came to see the play. And she, Cynthia's understudy, was the original C in Three Tall Women. No kidding. No kidding. When it was first performed at the English-speaking theatre in Vienna. And I said, she's another Cynthia, and I said to her, what was it all be like? I mean, did he crack a smile? Did he talk to you? She said, well, he gave me two notes. I can't remember which the second one was, but the first one is indelible in my mind. She said, he said to me, I don't want the audience to like her. About C or yeah. about the yeah, or about the whole absent. character. So, no, no, he only ever spoke about what he was uh, speaking about. About C, okay. And he was talking <laughs> to C about C and he didn't want the audience to like her. Well, it's so interesting because I want to pull up this quote. Myra Carter, who played, you know, who originated the role off-Broadway, right? Yes. She had a very dim view of the character that you play. She said, she's a stinking rich old Republican bat and I'm a radical feminist. I know you're quite a feminist yourself. I mean, what's your point of view of A? Well, it's entirely the point of view that Albie presents us with. But she's pretty feminist in the way she fights for her life Mm -hmm. and for what she believes in. She says more than once, referring back to when she was a girl, when she's 91 now, we had to make our own way. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty feminist, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Now, Cynthia Nixon, so did you talk about her budding political career? Well, I offered to bang on doors if she needs a helping hand, but I only have Monday off, so I wouldn't be much (laughs) used to her. But, you know, I mean, I just think it's so great of her to do it, actually, because this is, you know, you spoke about celebrities and things of that nature, and and celebrities are always criticised at time of of elections in my country when they stand up and speak, for whichever political party it is, actually. And um, this is something that was always raised with me. And I said, well, we've got the right to vote, haven't we? We've got the right to vote. We have a right to voice our opinion. But it's always, I think, particularly difficult for... I'm referring to my own country here. I've got that au fait with what it's like in America. But it's very, very difficult for women. It's always more difficult for women than it is for men. Still, still. I don't want to sound dense for asking this because I, I'm, I totally accept that that's true. But I'm curious, in your, from your perspective, what are some of the reasons that that's the case? I wish I had the detailed evidence to be able to answer that question in the round. Let me put it to you this way. I remember speaking to a Conservative MP when I was first elected, and she said, you know, they would ask things like, why do you wear suede shoes? Or why do you like this particular colour? As though they had anything whatever to do with the political point of view. And most frighteningly of all, these were questions that other women asked. A woman is expected to wear something different and attractive every time she attends an event in her constituency or, you know, she's out there canvassing or whatever. A man both as a prospective candidate and as a member of parliament, can get by with one, possibly two good suits, a couple of nice shirts and quiet ties, never Mm -hmm. too colourful, never too outrageous. Women can't do that. And also when you're a prospective candidate, it's unlikely that you will have been selected for the constituency in which you live. You probably have to go and 
you know, work in that constituency before an election at weekends or whenever. Um, and it may be occasionally the case, um, I know this directly from other MPs that I've spoken to, you have to have time off from your wage-earning job. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a woman, almost invariably when I put this question to my colleagues, the boss will pull a face and say, oh, well, all right, yes, okay, you know, it's going to be difficult filling the hole you're going to be. They're proud if a man asks for it. Okay. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I could see that. You can. <laughs> yeah. Ah, <laughs> good. Now, you now one thing that I read where they said that you didn't use kind of Hollywood-style glamour to dazzle everybody, but I think one of the things that that you absolutely had and it came through in in some of the speeches that you gave that were that went viral were an incredible ability to express yourself uh, you know, on in the house, right? So, so when Margaret Thatcher died, you gave a very, very passionate speech. What I regard as the desperate, desperately wrong track that Thatcherism took this country into is that we were told that everything I had been taught to regard as a vice under Thatcherism was in fact a virtue. And then there was another one where you were really taking down one of your opponents. Were those theatrical skills that you had helpful in those moments? I was in New York. I'm going back decades now. And I remember reading a report, I think, in the New York Times and showed that human beings fear death most. And second on their list of fears is public speaking. (laughs) And... I'd got that one nailed, actually. I mean, public yeah. speaking was never something that frightened me until I came to make my maiden speech in the chamber of the House of Commons. And I'd sat there in that chamber all day, pretty much. We used to start sitting at half past two. I think I was called by the speaker at eight o'clock. The chamber was virtually empty. It is a tradition that a maiden speech is not barracked. People don't try to interrupt you. They don't shout rude things at you. They listen And I've never been so frightened in my life as I was at that moment because it suddenly struck me. People had given me, well, essentially their trust by putting an X next to my party's name. You know, the most valuable thing we've got is our right to vote, in my opinion. And also my constituency, I mean, some of the greatest writers in the English language, like Keats, for example, had lived there. And I suddenly thought, you're standing up here. You know, and there are all these (laughs) giants of the English language. And it's your words that you're using. That was really scary. But it wore off over the years. (laughs) (laughs) And and what about writing? Because are you interested in writing for the stage? I can't write a postcard. Well, but you wrote speeches. No, no, I didn't write them. I spoke them. Okay. Um, You had a team. I can't. No, I didn't. I didn't have a team. I didn't write them. I just spoke Oh, they were, they were I off mean, the they cuff? I mean, they were off the cuff. Oh, yeah, wow. Always. Okay. Yeah, right. no, no, I couldn't write a postcard. So the other fear you mentioned, the fear of death, I, I feel like I can bring this up because the, we were just joking on the way and the play is a meditation on death. I mean, is that is that hard to do every night to get into that space? No, not really. Because again, I mean, you're put in that space by a very, very, very good writer. Yeah. And the characters don't know they're in a play. Yeah. And so it is that kind of the direct experience. Well, we all have direct experiences, if we're lucky, every day of our lives. And so it's that kind of, I suppose, energy shift that is is important, much more than the idea of mortality, I think. Do you like your character in the play? Aspects of her I admire. Yeah. I think 
there are aspects of her ruthless, truly ruthless honesty with herself in a way that are admirable. But then they're sometimes swamped by fantasies that she creates for herself. Well, not so much fantasies, but pretenses. But certainly her energy and her refusal to go down without fighting is something that I find admirable. Let me ask you, so you are one award away, and I'm very uh, hopeful that you're going to nail this, uh, of the what they call the triple crown of acting, which is Oscar, Emmy, and Tony. Oh, really? And no, I didn't you'd be that. the 24th person to ever do that. Um, Who counts those kinds uh, oh, of things? Oh, the people like me, nerds, gigantic <laughs> um, geeks like me. So, <laughs> so here is my question to you. I was on YouTube watching your um, Emmy and Oscar wins. Oh, really? And in those cases, you had you you didn't attend. You had there, people no. uh, except yeah. for you. I know it wasn't as big of a deal in terms of the showing. Like everybody shows up now, and I know that that these things have evolved. But what was the reason? Was it that you were just busy doing? I was theater? working. Yeah. Yes, I was blessed. I'd got jobs. Yes. And so, are you going to go to the Tonys this year? I think so. Yes, I've certainly yeah. got an invitation. It seems to be expected. Have you been to the Oscars before? I was on tour with the Royal Shakespeare Company. We were taking Hedda Gabler around the world. And we arrived in Los Angeles this particular... And it was the weekend, I think, at the Oscars. And I was asked if I would present one. And uh, so I did. I mean, it was a very different Oscars to the ones that they have now, you know. Right. And it was extremely efficient, but it was much, much, well quieter in a sense. It wasn't this huge, you know, red carpet thing. Do you have a standout memory? Was there any kind of... I have a standout memory of being introduced, I think, by Frank Sinatra and a standout memory. I was sitting next to Raquel Welch, I think, in the front row of the stalls and she needed a safety pin for some reason. (laughs) I think somebody got her a safety pin, yeah. Yeah. So you have two Best Actress Oscars, which there aren't that many people who've done that, and you have two Emmys, you really were, as I said earlier, at the absolute top of your career. Was it hard to leave all that behind when you decided to go into Anything politics? I could have done that was legal <laughs> to get rid of Margaret Thatcher and her government, I was prepared to yeah. do. My country was being destroyed before my very eyes. I mean, I've always been a member of the Labour Party and obviously conservative, but her policies and the th- everything I had been taught were vices. She told me were virtues. Greed wasn't greed. It was a doughty self-reliance. Selfishness wasn't selfishness. It was prioritizing your family, which was the right thing to do. You won your Emmys for playing Queen Elizabeth. Yes. And then you went and actually were an actual elected representative. Is there any... And we're in the midst of this kind of fascination with royals and with the crown and Wolf Hall and all that stuff. Is there any link between the dreamy artistic world of movies and shows about kings and queens and like the daily actual work of politics in the 21st century? No. Well, I mean, no. And I mean, <laughs> the, the world of Elizabeth I was hardly dreamy. I mean, she was in danger of being assassinated sort of every day of her life. No. And, and you know, I mean, I'm an avowed Republican. Doesn't mean I want the Queen to step down tomorrow. I mean, you know, she's 92, God love her. I mean, she's fine. But I do wish my country... I don't blame the royal family for staying where they are because that's what they regard as their duty. I do wonder at my fellow citizens that they prefer to have... As head of state, I mean, the Queen has nothing whatever to do in in a political sense. They prefer an inherited 
head of state in that way rather than one that they actually have a voice in electing as in the Republic. But then you look at what's going on around the world and you think, really, (laughs) I think, really, have I got it the right way around? (laughs) Well, I'm curious about that because I I never once thought a a monarchy made any sense at all until Trump. And now I'm kind of thinking, (laughs) well, it wouldn't be the worst thing to have somebody around here with such a class. Well, I'm looking at my country, you know, and going through the... Oh, the agonies of pulling us out of the European Union, Brexit. Why we voted for that? It's just beyond my comprehension, but we did, and so we'll have to wait and see what happens. Yeah. Um, did you watch The Crown at all? No, I can't get any of that on my telly. Okay. Um, but I'm sure, you know, eventually it'll be on a disc or something, and I'll have one of those things, you, you know, I don't know what they call them. What do you think of the royal wedding Oh. The nicest thing about it is, well, no, the best thing about it is that those two clearly are passionate about each other. I mean, you know, it's real. And one just hopes that they will be allowed to live a real life. And I think they probably will. Can we hope that you're going to do another film soon? I don't know. I mean, mean, a couple of scripts have come my way. I mean, they're never absolute, but you just have to wait and see what comes through the door. I would like it. I like working for cameras. You never have to work for their attention. <laughs> they're just obsessed with you. You can just, you know, yeah, they're great. Well, good. Okay, now every, our listeners know. Send, send some scripts, <laughs> some good scripts with good female characters. Okay, thank you so much, Miss Jackson. No, thank you. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, please find us on Apple Podcasts. You can leave a review. You can leave a rating. And you can tell other people to listen to the show. Uh, we've lost Mike and Richard. Uh, but you can find all of us still at VanityFair.com. And tweet at us on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And we're all on our own. Mike's at Mike underscore Hogan. Richard's at Rylaws. I'm at Katie Rich. Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Cam. I'm at Melville Maddock. Melville without the E. Matic. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best fashion report from the Cannes Film Festival red carpet goes to Cam Collins. It acknowledges all the capes, 